Okay, looks like it's recording. Okay. A'uzu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin was salatu was salam ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Assalamu alaykum. Salam join us sister. Coming. Alaykum assalam. I don't know if you're here for a different class, but come on in anyway. <laughs> I thought she, she might have been heading down to one of the other rooms. Get her in here. <laughs> okay. Um, as promised, um, today we're going to um, have a, uh, a look at Bedizaman's uh, 25th word, Bedizaman Sayyid Nusi's 25th word, which is on the miraculousness of the Quran. Um, so this is in response to a request. Um, yeah, in what sense, um, you know, what do our scholars take the Quran to be miraculous? Uh, you might find that this differs from the sort of miraculousness that you might have heard of, you know, nowadays, you know, being bandied about online and stuff. Um, uh, you know, um, certain verses from the Qur'an seem to accord with certain things that have only been discovered recently in science and so on. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what to make of um, those sorts of miraculousness. Um, they'd need to be judged on a case-by-case basis, but I know some scholars are, you know, opposed to that sort of um, thing, um, you know, um, because, and rightly so too, because the thing is that science is so fluid um, that it's thought that what happens in science, just uh, as a brief aside, what happens in science is that it's not that like there are you know um, small changes from theory to theory. Rather, what happens is that there are revolutions, right? There are revolutions in science. Okay, it's well known in the philosophy of science. Um, so that the theories of one period bear almost no resemblance to the theories that they replaced. Okay. Um, so don't be surprised if various cosmological theories or biological theories of today, including evolution, don't be surprised if in the fullness of time, um, even, in, even among secular scientists, that don't be surprised if you know, the theories uh, that describe these sorts of phenomena are completely different in the future. Even in the near future, they might be completely different. So then what happens if we say that, hey, look, the Qur'an perfectly accords with this particular scientific phenomenon as it's currently described, then what happens when that scientific phenomenon is described differently in the future? Now we need to sort of backtrack and say, oh, no, no, that's not what we meant, or, you know, um, you know, uh, yeah, we could find ourselves in, you know, uh, a spot of difficulty there. Um, the kind of miraculousness that our scholars um, have generally uh, taken the Qur'an to exhibit is that which pertains to its um, eloquence, right? Belagat. And when we say eloquence, don't think just purely in terms of... Because, um, you know, the immediate worry is that eloquence seems to be... Um, like, in the, like the way we use the term eloquence nowadays, it sort of seems to refer to maybe something, you know, subjective, like a, a sort of aesthetic... Um, uh, value, you know, has, yes, you know, aesthetically, yes, the Qur'an is written very beautifully. Um, it's so beautiful as to be miraculous. Uh, that's probably true. I mean, that's, I'd say that's definitely true. That's definitely true. But um, what the scholars are referring to, like, and Badizaman in particular, what he's referring to is not merely some subjective characterization, 
right? Not just some subjective sort of eloquence. Rather, it's a kind of eloquence that um, if you had the expertise in Arabic, if you're an expert in the linguistic sciences, in Arabic, in the science of rhetoric, and so on, right, these sorts of linguistic sciences, um, you could really, I mean, if, assuming that you were impartial, you could assess this. You could assess it. For example, uh, just by way of introduction, you know, right? for example, um, Bedouzaman writes at length, like I think he gives it a book-length treatment, the miraculousness of the Qur'an's eloquence in terms of its concision, like conciseness, because right? conciseness is a form of eloquence. Okay? So let's say that I want to you know, express something in written language or verbal language. To whatever extent I can do that with fewer words, then that's seen as a mark of eloquence, as opposed to being verbose, right? as opposed to using too many words. Yeah? Um, I probably use too many words. Right? Um, so... But the Qur'an, the Qur'an expresses great, great, I mean, that, and, and that in its own right is an aspect of his eloquence, like just the sheer number of meanings that it, that it expresses, the sheer amount of knowledge that it expounds. Um, well, those meanings, right, so, you know, each verse of the Qur'an has layers and layers of meaning. That our scholars agree on too. It's not as though, you know, hey, um, you know, I can ascribe any old meaning to any old verse. No. Um, you know, this has to be plausible. You know, scholars have to agree on it. Um, you know, it, not necessarily at the level of ijma, you know, a complete consensus, but, uh, you know, like, it, it, um, yeah, when we say that a verse will have multiple meanings, there'll be numerous scholars who will agree that it has those meanings. You know, it won't just be one person's view. Okay. Well, it, it expresses all those meanings in the fewest possible words. So now we could do this. Like, we could we could um, like quantitatively assess this. Yeah? We could count up the number of meanings and count up the number of words, um, and yeah, we could assess this. So now, what's being said here? Right? What's the exact miracle here? Right? What is the miracle? Um, it's that the Qur'an is inimitable, right? It has an eloquence, right? whether in terms of um, the number of meanings that it expresses or in terms of its concision, its conciseness, um, and uh, 40 sorts of miraculousness that Zuman describes, not just here but in his book-length treatment on the issue, 40 categories of miraculousness, all pertaining to the Qur'an's eloquence. Right? 40 categories. All right. So right, it's eloquence in terms of those 40 or so categories, right, um, is such that it is inimitable. Uh, it cannot be imitated. Um, so let's just say um, yeah, this will segue well into this, you know, just to, uh, I'm tr trying to prove a point here. Right? I'm trying to convince you, okay? Um, miracles are important, guys. Like, miracles are important. Right? Here's the thing. Like, let me do a little experiment for a second, okay? Um, I'll tell you, tell you an incident, right, that occurred may or may not have occurred, okay? You better judge. Right? Um, on my way here, on my way here, um, there was nobody else around. Yeah, I was sort of in an empty hallway and an angelic being came to me. Yeah, I mean, believe me or not, right? An angelic being comes to me right? and says, hey, I'm from God. Right? Now, go and tell all the students at Melbourne Uni to practice this new religion, live their lives differently. Go tell everybody and tell the whole world. 
Who believes me? Put your hand up. Okay, right, you know. Because yeah, <laughs> maybe I try to prove a point, but you know. No, be honest, guys. Like, who really believes me? You know, who? If, let's pretend I'm not joking. You know, I'm half joking here, right? I'm just trying to prove a point, right? But let's say I really came to you, right, in all seriousness and said that, right? Let's pretend I walk out now and come back five minutes later and say, oh, guys, I'm not joking this time. I'm, an angel came to me and said, practice this new religion. Who believes me? Put your hand up. Not, not, nobody's going to put their hand up, right? Um, how, how does a prophet, peace be upon him, right, or any prophet, how does he convince so many people of his or her, uh, sorry, of his prophethood. Uh, so many people, so as to upend the whole world order, to create a whole new religion that still lasts to this day, um, that changes the whole political and economic order. Um, how does he do that? How does he get so many people to believe him? It's always due to miracles. Right? Allah has sent every single prophet. And he has sent hundreds of thousands of prophets, right? All prophets that have been sent have been sent with one or more miracles, right? Sets of miracles. Isa, alayhi salam, he had his sorts of miracles. Musa, alayhi salam, he had his own sorts of miracles. And who had the most sorts of miracles? Our prophet, peace be upon him, right? And they're described at length in another part of the Risale and in, you know, um, in various sources, right? You know, in the Hadith and and, and in various uh, of our sources, so it's always through miracles. The function of miracles is to prove the claims being made by the prophet. Um, and that explains a whole lot. Like, so whereas you had a group of people who had been like, long practising a certain religion uh, um, and you know, were wealthy and um, they were strong economically, politically, socially, they were strong and powerful in every way, um, someone comes and opposes all of that right, with a new message, a new way of life, um, and manages to yeah, upend that order. Okay, um, that could not have been done in the absence of miracles. So that, like, um, Bedizaman describes elsewhere, like that in its own right. You know, I mean, just the fact that Islam exists as a religion today right, um, is a proof of Allah's existence. Is a proof of Muhammad's prophethood. Okay, um, yeah, like, how is it that, like? There's a religion called Christianity or a religion called Judaism. It's because their prophets came with miracles. Now, what is the foremost miracle of our Prophet The foremost miracle. Some might say the splitting of the moon. Um, that's a big miracle. It is. But his foremost miracle is um, the Quran that he brought. Let me ask you this, right? Better, you're an artist, right? I'll pick on you, right? You're an artist, okay? Um, what, uh, what artist, right? What person who produces like some sort of an artistic work, such as a literary work, um, makes the claim that hey, nobody right, from nobody past, present, or even future will ever be able to match this. Right? No one will be able to imitate this. No one will be able to beat it in terms of. Um, uh, you, like producing something superior. Nobody will be able to do that and no one will even be able to imitate its style. Yeah? Um, who does that? Who does that? Who can have the confidence to do that? Like, so you're someone who's trying to convince people. Yeah? You're, you've come to convince. Nobody denies that. Even our prophet's um, sworn enemies, like even his modern and historical detractors, they all agree that 
Nobody disagrees that he came with a message and that he called people to a certain way of life. Yeah? Um, so you're here, you're trying to convince the whole world, including future peoples. Why would you subject yourself to such abject failure? Because if something, like, if something is written by the hand of man, um, then it should be quite possible to imitate it. Uh, to, like, you know, well, maybe there are certain works that no one has been able to imitate. I don't, I don't know. Um, it may be certain, you know, works of poetry or, you know, certain literary works. But, but who could claim that? Ab initio. Who could claim that? Like, who would have... Like, what would be the point in it? Right? What, and, and who would risk such a thing? Only someone, right? Um, well, only if they're not your own words, right? Only a divine being. Right? So these are all um, points of evidence. These are all proofs of the fact that the Qur'an is indeed miraculous, okay? Um, that we're going to read shortly, uh, you know, at least one or two examples of how it is of um, inimitable, uh, you know, and, and, and therefore miraculous um, eloquence, right, belagat, right? Uh, the sort that we're going to look at in particular is that which pertains to uh, its word order, right? So how, do, how are the words in a given sentence or a given ayat selected Right? so as to reinforce the message in that particular sentence or that particular part of the ayah. Right? Um, so, yeah, it's word order. That's yet another example of belagat, um, of, of uh, eloquence. Right? Because let's say that I'm trying to get across a certain message to you. Now, the more grammatical devices and words and you know, literary tools and devices that I can bring to bear on that, um, the better, right? Because I'm trying to convince you of a certain message. I'm trying to, you know, prove a point or, or get across a certain message. Well, Bethesda's going to give, we'll only look at one example, but he gives some examples of um, verses in the Quran where every single aspect, right, every single word, every single um, grammatical device, every aspect of it is all working to reinforce the message, the underlying message of that particular um, sentence or ayat. Okay. Um, so this is done in the Quran um, in, to, to such an extent that it's just inimitable. Nobody else, right, its author is telling us, nobody's going to be able to do this. I mean, he knows what capacities, Allah knows what capacities he has given us. He knows that full well. And, of course, Allah knows from the very outset whether or not he's given us sufficient capacity to write something, to produce a work uh, that can imitate its style or match in terms of its quality of eloquence. Allah knows that. And he's telling us from the very outset. In numerous places in the Qur'an, Allah says, bring um, a surah like it or bring ten surahs like it. Okay, so giving us there the option. <laughs> um, if it's too hard for you, just try to produce one surah that is like the surahs of the Qur'an. Or if you need some more space to work with, try you know, even ten surahs. Up to you. <laughs> just produce something like it. If you really think that my prophet, peace be upon him, is lying, that this is of divine origin. Okay, that's the challenge of the Qur'an. Right? So... Um, you know, it makes one's hair stand on end. You know, it's just uh, a remarkable thing. It's a living, breathing miracle. 
And it's easily like disproven. Like even to this very day, come on, guys, whoever wants, whoever wants, come along and just uh, you could like completely, um, you could com- you could completely destroy an entire uh, religion if you wanted to just by meeting the challenge laid out in it. No one's been able to do that. Yeah, it's clear that there are, you know, forces working to, um, how can I put this, you know, there are certainly forces working against us, aren't there? That's clear to see. Politically and and, and in other ways, socially, um, morally, there are various forces working against us um, in quite an overt way. Um, Bedouzaman's going to... I won't say any more by way of introduction. Bedouzaman is going to now mention that particular point, you know, um, yeah, come on, guys, come and meet this challenge if you want. He's going to point out, actually, that would be easy if it can be done. That's a lot easier than the, the alternative, right? which is what? It's war or it's political machination and whatever, right? Um, so, yeah, without further ado, let me start by reading the 25th word of the Desali in order. It's very lengthy. We're just going to read a tiny bit of it. Um, I highly recommend it, you know. Um, it's the shortened version of his Isharatul Ijaz. Now, his Isharatul Ijaz, it's not part of the Risali Nur, it's a standalone book. Um, it's on the syllabus at most Islamic you know, institutions and universities. It's, from what I understand, it's considered, if not the, one of the, if not the foremost text on the issue of the miraculousness of the Quran's eloquence. Um, yeah, it's a well respected and well known text in scholarly circles. Isharatul Ijaz. Um, this is the concise or short version of that okay um so it's lengthy but it's still yeah short compared to the ishara to lijaz um and we're just going to look at a tiny bit of it okay so okay bismillah so he starts off um i won't read it but he starts off with um like just a definition of what the quran is um he goes into some length just in terms of what the quran itself is um, and speaks of it in ways that maybe you haven't heard before. So, yeah, I do recommend looking at this in its entirety if you have the time, guys. Um, um, I'm going to skip ahead a page or two to the first light. A section called the first light, okay? This first light consists of three rays. First ray. This is the eloquence, the balagha, of the Qur'an, which is at the degree of miraculousness. Its eloquence is a wonderful eloquence, born of the beauty of its word order, the perfection of its conciseness, the marvels of its style, its singularity and pleasantness, the excellence of its, of its expression, its superiority and clarity, the power and truth of its meanings, and from the purity and fluency of its language, which for 1,300 years, and now it's been 1,400 years, has challenged the most brilliant men of letters of mankind, their most celebrated orators, and the most profoundly learned of them, and invited them to dispute it. It has provoked them intensely. And although it has invited them to dispute it, those geniuses, whose heads touch the skies in their pride and conceit, have been unable to so much as open their mouths to do so, and have bowed their heads utterly put down. Thus we shall point to the miraculousness 
in its eloquence in two aspects. First aspect, it possesses miraculousness and its miraculousness exists for the following reasons. Okay, so watch now like the landscape in which the Quran comes, okay? The great majority of the people of the Arabian Peninsula at that time were illiterate. Due to this, in place of writing, in place of writing, they preserved the sources of their pride, historical events and stories, which assisted good morality, instead by means of poetry and eloquence. Through the attraction of poetry and eloquence, meaningful sayings would remain in people's memories and be passed down to generations. And so, in consequence of this innate need, the goods most in demand in the immaterial market of that people was eloquence. An eloquent literary figure of a tribe, even, was like its greatest national hero. It was through him that they gained their greatest pride. Thus, that intelligent people who ruled the world through their intelligence after the establishment of Islam were, among the peoples of the world, at the highest and most advanced degree of eloquence. All right? So for the Arabs, it was, it was their thing. Yeah? Eloquence was their thing, really. It was the thing most in demand among them, was the cause of their pride and the thing for which they had greatest need. Eloquence had such high value that two tribes would do battle at the word of a literary figure and they would make peace at his word. They even wrote in gold on the walls of the Kaaba the seven qasidas of seven poets called the Mu'allaqat al-Sabah and took great pride in them. Thus it was at such a time when eloquence was the thing most sought after that the Qur'an was revealed. Just as at the time of Musa, it was magic that was most sought after and at the time of Isa it was medicine the most important of their the Arabs miracles uh, sorry the, of the most important of those prophets miracles were in those fields and so the Quran invited the Arabian orators of that time to reply to even one of the shorter surahs it challenged them with the decree of this is rendered here in English and if you are in doubt about what we have revealed to our servant, then produce a surah resembling it. And it also said, if you do not believe, you shall be damned and shall go to hell. It provoked them intensely. It smashed their pride in a fearsome manner. It was contemptuous of their arrogant minds. It condemned them, firstly, to eternal extinction and then to eternal extinction in hell, as well as to worldly extinction. It said, either dispute me or you and your property shall perish. Okay. Just give me some, I just want to shut that door. Okay, so now here's the main point. Thus, if it had been possible to dispute it, right, so that's um, challenge being issued in the Qur'an, right? And if you are in doubt about what we have revealed to our servant, then produce a sort of resembling it, right? So that challenge there that, that appears in many places in the Qur'an, right? So referring to that, right? if it had been possible to dispute it, is it at all possible that while there was an easy, easy solution like disputing the Qur'an with one or two lines and nullifying that claim, 
Uh, is it at all possible that instead they should have chosen the most dangerous and most difficult way, the way of war? Right? Because that's what happened, right? What happened? They fought us, right? The enemies of Islam, right? the early Meccans, they fought us um, in literal battles, right, with swords, when all they needed to do was just produce a couple of lines of writing and they could have, you know, totally discredited Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that way. Right? Instead, they chose war, Okay. Yes, is it at all possible that that clever people, that politically minded nation, who at one time were to govern the world through politics, right, is it at all possible that a people like that should have abandoned the shortest, easiest and most light way and chosen instead the most dangerous, which was going to cast their lives and all their property into peril? For if their literary figures had been able to dispute it with a few words, the Qur'an would have given up its claim. They would have been saved from material and moral disaster. Whereas they instead chose a fearsome and long road like war. That means it was not possible to dispute it by word. It was impossible. Therefore, they were compelled to fight it with the sword. Furthermore, there are two most compelling reasons for the Qur'an being imitated. Right? So two reasons why someone would want to imitate the Qur'an. Okay? The first is its enemy's ambition to dispute it, right? so to refute that claim right? that I referred to. So that's one. And the other is its friend's pleasure at imitating it. Through these two compelling, impelling causes, millions of Books in Arabic have been written, but not one of them resembles the Qur'an. Whether learned or ignorant, whoever looks at it and at them most certainly says the Qur'an does not resemble these. Not one of them has been able to imitate it. So therefore, a couple of options, right? Either the Qur'an is inferior to all of them, and according to the consensus of friend and foe alike, this is completely non-valid and impossible. Or, instead, the Qur'an is superior to all of them. Okay, now he deals with a counter-argument. So, he asks here rhetorically, how do you know no one has tried to dispute it and that no one has had sufficient confidence to challenge it and that no one's helped for anyone else was of any avail? The answer. If it had been possible to dispute it, most certainly it would have been attempted, for it was a question of honour and pride and life and property were at risk. And if it had been attempted, most certainly there would have been many to support such an attempt. For those who obstinately oppose the truth have always been many. And if it had had many supporters, they surely would have found fame. For insignificant contests even attract the wonder of people and find fame in stories and tales. So an extraordinary contest and event such as that could not have remained secret. The most ugly and infamous things against Islam have been related and become famous. Yeah? All kinds of allegations have been made against our Prophet. Right? Peace be upon him. Right? We know of them. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we've heard of all those. 
yeah. So the most ugly and infamous things against Islam have been related and have become famous. Whereas, apart from one or two stories about Musaylima, the liar, nothing has been related, right, about some attempt to refute the Qur'an, right, to imitate the Qur'an successfully. Yeah. Nothing in history, basically, right? So that absence is telling, okay? Now, Musaylima was very eloquent. But when compared with the exposition of the Qur'an, which possesses infinite beauty, his words passed into the chronicles as nonsense. Thus, the miraculousness of the Qur'an's eloquence exists as certainly as twice two equals four. The matter is thus. Okay. Now, so I think that part was quite self-explanatory. Um, so, you know, what you're saying, just that, hey, you know, um, this challenge has been issued by the Qur'an. Um, now, it's clear that it hasn't been met, okay? Um, like, if it could have, like I mentioned earlier, if it could have been met, then um, someone would have tried to meet it, like even today, yeah? Because it seems as though they're working against us, seen as though they want to, um, you know, um, they want to, uh, um, what's the word? kind of overpower us politically and socially and in various ways, don't they? Um, well, they could have easily um, achieved that uh, rather than through political machinations and wars and, you know, and so on and so on. All they needed to do, um, even today, is just produce a few lines of writing. So it hasn't been done even today. Um, uh, but, you know, so what about in the past? Maybe it's been done in the past and we just haven't heard about it, someone might suggest. Or well, Bidizamad's saying, well, that's implausible, you know. Something like that, it would have, um, like, its absence from the chronicles, its absence from um, historical accounts uh, is quite telling. It's very telling. Right? Uh, if someone had produced the like of the Qur'an, we would have known about it. And probably what would have happened, there would have been no such religion as Islam today, okay, most likely. Um, but given the absence of all that, yes, so it stands that um, there has been no um, viable challenger uh, to the Qur'an, right, to that Qur'anic uh, challenge. So now let's have a look at an example just um, to finish off, like just one sort of aspect of the Qur'an's um, miraculousness, inimitable eloquence, right, in terms of its um, word order. As I said, right, how, let's see how um, just in the one part of one ayah, um, there's a certain message and every single aspect, right, of that, um, of those, of that uh, part of that ayah is going to serve that, is going to reinforce that message, okay? So let's see, let's see an example of that. Second aspect, we shall now explain in five points the wisdom of the Qur'an's miraculousness contained in its eloquence. First point, there is there is a wonderful eloquence and purity of style in the Qur'an's word order. From beginning to end, Isharat al Translating the English as signs of miraculousness. Right? It's Bidizman's book. Right? From beginning to end, signs of miraculousness demonstrates this eloquence and conciseness in the word order. The way the second, minute, and hour hands of a clock each complete the order of the others, that is, that is the way the entire work 
explains the order in each sentence and passage of the all-wise Qur'an, and in each of its words, and in the order in the relationships between the sentences. Whoever wishes may look at that, right, referring there to his book, Isha'at al-Ijaz, whoever wishes may look at that and see this wonderful eloquence in the word order. Here we shall mention only one or two examples in order to demonstrate the word order in the parts of a sentence as a whole. For example, okay, so there's a verse here, it's rendered here in English as follows. I'll find the Arabic in a second, I've got it. Um, but if a breath of your sustainer's punishment touches them. Okay. Got the Arabic here. I'll be fine a quick one. Okay. So just that part, right? It's sort of half of an ayat. Okay. That passage there from the Quran. How is it related in English here? But if a breath of your sustainer's punishment touches them. In other translations, a breath is translated as a whiff. Okay. Okay. So, in this sentence, it wants to point out. Right. So here's the. What's the aim of that um, passage? Right. What's the aim of it? Right? It wants to point out the punishment of Allah as terrible through showing the severity of the least amount. So terrible there, not meaning that it's bad, that Allah's punishment is not good. Um, of course, even Allah's punishment is a manifestation of his infinite beauty. Um, it means it's a torment, it's severe. Right? Even the tiniest amount of Allah's punishment is severe. Okay? Um, you don't want to suffer even the tiniest amount of Allah's punishment. Okay? That's the underlying message there, right? So in this sentence, it wants to point out the punishment as terrible through showing the severity of the least amount. That is to say, it expresses littleness or fewness. And all the parts of the sentence, right? So all the parts of the sentence look also to this littleness or fewness and reinforce it. Okay. Thus, the words, but if... So that is, but if, in, okay, in, but if. Right, the words but if, what do they do? They signify doubt, right, but if. They signify doubt, and doubt, right, it looks to littleness or fewness. What does he mean by looks to? Right, conceptually they're related, yeah? Um, so the phrase but if um, is conceptually related um, to littleness or fewness, right? You could have used a different phraseology there that um, maybe overlooked that, that didn't look to littleness or fewness, but instead looked to greatness and enormity. But no, um, Allah has appropriately chosen right, um, something that's conceptually related to littleness or fewness. But if we're let in. Okay. The word touches. Right? Um, brother, this is where I'm going to need your help. So, um, meset... Masethum. 
Mesetum. Do you, can you translate that for us? Like, it's, so is there... Um, well, can you... Mm, any Arabic speaker here? No. Um, look, look, guys, a few years ago, I did this same similar halakha um, uh, with Brother Usaid, who's now back in Palestine. Uh, um, Allah give him ease and Allah reward him. Uh, and I, I miss him dearly, <laughs> if he's listening. I miss that brother dearly. Um, I did this same halakha, right, or we read this same section together, you know, and he was able to um, give me examples at the time, right, of how, yes, you know, there are that, that kind of, right, that sort of touching, right, is a light touch. Can any Arabic speaker here corroborate that? Right? He's, but Brother Said, and Brother Said, he's, he's um, uh, you know, I'm quite, confident, uh, I'm quite confident in the accuracy of what he says here, right? He says that kind of touching is a light touch. Yeah? Agree? Okay. All right. That kind of touching is a light touch, right? It says here, the word touches, okay, masatum, means to touch lightly, and, it, and it, it expresses a small amount. And just as the word a breath, okay, so a breath, yeah, where did it go? Nafhatum, right? Nafhatum. A breath, right? What does he say? And just as the word a breath, nafhatun, is merely a whiff, so too is it in the singular form. Grammatically, it is a mastara marra, a mastara marra, and signifies once. All right. So what's uh, again? We need a good Arabic speaker here, right? But a mastar is um, a verbal noun, right? A verbal noun, a noun derived from a verb. Okay, so um, like um, there's the word, the verb to breathe. Let's say, right, to breathe, um, and then there's the noun derived from that, right? Um, breath. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, now, a mastara marra, right, is a sort of verbal noun um, that signifies um, uh, singularity, right? Um, just one, as opposed to plural. Like it's like saying a breath. Yeah, a breath. Right? So in Arabic, with the one word, right, due to um, its grammatical um, uh, structure, due to its grammatical nature, as a mastara marra, um, you can say, yeah, like what we need in English, two words to describe. Like we in English to say that like a breath is singular, you need to say a breath, don't you, or one breath, or something along those lines, right? Um, here, nafhatun. Okay, um, so it's a it is a mastara marra, and it signifies once, right? right? So just one breath. Also, the tenween. Right? So the tenween there, right? What's tenween? Um, it's translated as uh, like um, nun nation, right? Like so, uh, grammatical rules relating to nun, yeah, brother, uh, nun. Right, so the letter N in Arabic. So there are certain grammatical rules relating to um, uh, the letter N. Right? Um, now. Uh, its use here, again, is significant, right? What does it do, right? Um, the tanween, right? So at the end of nafhatun, the tanween, it indicates indefiniteness, right? Indefiniteness, right? So um, what do we mean there by indefinite? Like, um, if, if a noun is indefinite, it doesn't have any specific referent, right? It doesn't refer... To, like, it's... Uh, how would I? How would I? Um, how would I say if I did want it to be definite? I'd say uh, Shabir's breath, yeah, or my breath. Right? Um, but here, what 
what's being used is a breath, a breath. Okay, so what does that do? The tanween indicating indefiniteness, right, in a breath, nafatun, expresses, again, littleness or fewness. Okay, and means it is so insignificant that it can scarcely be known. The word of signifies division or a part. It means a bit and indicates paucity. The word punishment, adab, points to, brother, how do I say of in Arabic? Of, or anyone? anyone? Of? Uh, on the context, yeah. Anyway, we'll skip that. Again, we need, um, uh, um, brother, we'll say back. Um, but let's just uh, jump ahead to adab, right? Adab. Right. So again, like when, Said was here, he told me azab is a light kind of punishment, right? Compared to other sorts of punishment, he said definitely that's a light kind of punishment, right? Uh, relatively speaking, okay. All right, so the word punishment, okay, um, azab points to a light sort of punishment in relation to um, n- other kinds of punishment, such as nekal, chastisement, or iqab, iqab, penalty. Okay, and suggests a small amount. And by alluding to compassion and being used in place of other divine names like muntaqim um, uh, or um, he's got, they've got here subdua and all compelling. So I'd have to look up um, uh, the originals there. Yeah, I haven't got the, um, uh, the Turkish uh, handy. Um, but yeah, so other like... Um, uh, Jalali divine names, right? Like, you know, subdua or compelling or avenger. Right? Instead of using one of those, what's been used? Sustainer, rab. Okay? Um, right, which is a Jamali name. Right? The word rab, sustainer, indicates littleness or fewness. It says, right? So, how does it do that? It says, if the small amount of punishment suggested in all this paucity has such an effect, you can compare how dreadful divine chastisement would be. Okay. So, like, you know, just to kind of touch on that, like, part there, like, to use, to refer there to, you know, our sustainer, Rab, right, um, rather than Al-Muntakim or, you know, a similar name. Okay. Um, it brings to mind, like, um, you know, say, like, it's analogous, say, maybe to um, the kind of punishment that you'd receive, not from some, um, like, a ruler or, you know, like a, a tyrant or someone like that, uh, but maybe your mother's or father's, you know, gentle, merciful, um, constructive punishment, yeah? Um, so, yeah, your rub, who is your rub? Your rub is your sustainer. Um, what does it mean for Allah to be a rub, right? What Allah has created us... Um, for certain purposes, yeah, uh, what he wants us to do is over time, um, I mean, this can be expressed in many ways, but right, like, what is our purpose here? Like, Mbedesman devotes whole sections of the Risale to that, right? What is the purpose in our being here on this planet? Right? Um, but part of our business here, right, is to worship Allah. And what that boils down to, like, what that amounts to in part, right, is to be able to, um, to ever greater extent, to know and thereby mirror the beauty and perfection of Allah's names and attributes. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I go out in the world and let's say I... Uh, um, come on in, brother, I could see. Yeah. 
I go out in the world, you know, um, and I come to know Allah in these sorts of ways, right? Yeah. Um, uh, sorry to use the same example all the time, guys. It's the quickest one to come to mind. But there's somebody, right, begging for money, right, there, you know, out, um, at my um, coals, right, in Essendon North. Uh, nearly every day there's somebody there, like, you know, with a little sign. Um, what does it say? Um, uh, I just need $20 for a room. But he's got that same sign every night, you know. <laughs> one day I'll give him $30 and see if he's still there, right? Um, anyway, right. I go out, let's pretend, yeah, to Coles. I see that man um, and I give him some uh, money. Um, and all the while, right, being, you know, um, you know, a student of the Quran and being a student of these sorts of matters, let's say, right, um, yeah, I give him the money knowing that that act could not have been possible if it weren't for Allah's generosity, you know. If Allah didn't make it possible for that event to occur, then I could not have done that. That could not have occurred. Nobody could have given him a red cent, right? But for the existence of a being who was Kareem, right? And Dhul Jalali wal Ikram and so on, yeah? Um, so knowing all that, yeah, I go and I engage in this act. So what happens is I have this experiential knowledge of divine generosity. I know the meaning and the nature and the beauty and the excellence of divine compassion and mercy and generosity through actually um, being involved in an act of generosity, right? which is really empowered and made possible by Allah, but um, I kind of assent to it. Like, by choosing to do it, I kind of assent to it. So all this is a topic for another day, but um, what it means for Allah to be a Rabb, right, is that he, by... He brings it about that we fulfil the purposes of our creation. All right. Um, he, how can I phrase this right? Like he's bringing it about, right? Right. Here's a better way to express it, right? He's giving us everything that we need, right? All the knowledge, all the ability, um, all the um, guidance, yeah, all the guidance that we need to do things like that, to go out and engage in acts of charity or whatever, or any good deed, right? Um, he, he's enabling us to do that so that we can fulfil the purpose of our creation, right? That is a manifestation of his rububiyya, of his rabbness, of his being a rab, okay? Um, so it's very much, um, it's very much one of the Jamali names, Right? The names that bring to mind first and foremost, um, yeah, you know, beauty. Yeah, it's Jamali. Like all of Allah's names are beautiful, but it's just that um, some of them bring to mind, like when you're first confronted with their manifestation, they instead bring to mind um, tremendousness and awesomeness and fearsomeness, right? Jalali things, yeah. Um, so the use of Rabb there. It's significant, right? Because, yeah, it's a Jamali name. Um, and, yeah, like, where if Allah chooses to um, inflict upon you just a, you know, a minimal punishment, a very light punishment, um, that is very much a manifestation of rububiyya. Yeah? Uh, let's say, yeah, he, he, he's a person, he's a believer, and he, um, he needs to be awoken from his slumber, let's say, right? He's engaging in all kinds of wrongdoing, and he needs to be reminded. He needs a bit of a wake-up call, let's say. So, yeah, it's well known in, in, in the authentic sources right, that, you know, often Allah does um, give you a wake-up call. Bedouzaman speaks of it. He refers to it as a compassionate slap. You might find something goes wrong in your life, right? You don't achieve a certain goal or you lose some of your wealth or, you know, you get sick, 
Okay? Um, yeah, and always, what Allah does, always he uses the minimum force. He does not use, um, he does not give you, like let's say a punishment is in order, a punishment's required to wake you up, let's say, or maybe a punishment's required to cleanse you, you know, so that you don't need to go to hell, let's say, pretend now day of judgment, you know, your bad deeds far outweigh your good deeds and you need to be cleansed somewhat, you need to be cleansed a little so that you can be fit for Jannah, right? Um, always, always, right? If Allah needs to cleanse you in that way, use the minimum force. He's not going to, I mean, a being of absolute beauty and perfection, right? a rub, he's not going to use more force than required, right? Unlike, you know, the policeman or the government official or, right, you know, unlike the limited beings, in other words, right, of the world, <laughs> often they, because they can't perfectly titrate their force, can they? Right? You know, uh, the policeman is, is told not to use unreasonable force, right? He's, um, you know, the members of the Victoria Police are, right, but you'd know this, they are to use force not disproportionate, dot, 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 right? Not disproportionate with, and I forget how the rest goes, right? Um, yeah, but they often fail in that because they're limited beings, right? Either they're malicious or, or sometimes even trying not to, even trying their hardest not to um, use more force than required, they fail in that, you know, don't they, right? Um, you know, and then they end up facing, you know, better in the courts, okay? All right, so, um, but Allah is not like that. He's a being of absolute beauty and perfection, and he knows, and he's quite, he knows how much um, punishment is required in any given context, and he never, even for the worst unbeliever, even for the most obstinate and rebellious unbeliever, never uses more force than required, never punishes them more than they deserve. Okay? Um, so, yeah, like that in its own right is an example of divine beauty, but yeah. So the kind of punishment that's being referred to here is the, how can I put it, the rabbi, you know, kind of punishment, right? That, that the sort of punishment that is a manifestation of Allah's rububiyya, his name of rab. Him as sustainer, him as the one who um, raises you, right, and um, causes you to rise up through the ranks of maturity, right, and come to know him to ever greater degrees. That is your business here. That is what we're created for, you know, and he does that, um, and it's a manifestation of his name of Rab, yeah. Um, all right, so to finish off, right, what does Bedjusman say, right? How much then do the small parts of this sentence look to one another and assist one another? How each reinforces the aim of the whole? This example looks to the words and aims in one degree. Okay, and then he continues, second example. Okay, and he goes on and on for, I don't know, probably ooh, a couple of hundred pages maybe, or 150 pages, okay. Um, and as I say, he gives it a book-length treatment elsewhere, you know. Um, so... That is just one little example of the Qur'an's belagat, right? The miraculousness, the miraculous inimitability, right? the uncopyability, if you like, of the Qur'an's eloquence. Right? It can't be matched. Um, and again, I just, I had this debate, brother, you'll remember, what was the name, the sad clown or whoever it was, right? Um, years ago, this is how I met Shabir, right? Large part of the reason why he's here today, right, is because of a certain forum on which we met years ago online, right? Well, we, we used to debate, you know, uh, it was open to all comers, right? And atheists used to come and, you know, um, prospective Muslims used to come, Muslims used to come. What was it called? Goaher.com, right? Goaher.whatever, whatever, something like that. 
Anyway, um, yeah, one guy, I think it was the sad clown, right, was his moniker. Um, yeah, you know, he disputed this particular point, you know, this challenge, right? What did he say? Um, you know, by way of counter-argument, you know, what did he say? Um, the fact that uh, he agreed with me that no one has met the challenge, right? Nobody's met the challenge, right? But he says, that does not prove that, um, you know, it's miraculous or that it's a divine origin and that it can't be met. Right? Even if no one to date has matched it, um, maybe someone can one day match it. It doesn't rule it out, does it, you know? So he's kind of, like, um, constructing in his own mind there like a sort of, you know, a deduction, right? A deductive argument, you know? Um, but the structure of the argument maybe isn't like that. Like, really, what it probably is is a sort of inference to the best explanation, okay? So here's the thing, which is, in its own right, a sort of deductive argument. Uh, it's just as powerful, it's just as good, um, but it's roughly like this, you know? Um, here is a challenge that's been issued, right? Um, here are a bunch of people that would very much like to be able to destroy Islam, and yet no one has met that challenge. And if it were of human origin, it ought to be um, very tempting to do, very doable, yeah? Um, all we need to do is just write a few words, or if you want more space to work with, many words. Right? Um, all you need to do is do, produce a piece of writing that matches the Qur'an style. So that's the other thing. The Qur'an style is um, it doesn't fall into any of the um, seven or so categories of poetry. Um, it does not count as a form of prose. It's just, a, like, if, for those who um, know Arabic, um, which I don't, you know, but for those who, like, have expertise or deep knowledge in Arabic, um, yeah, like, Bediuzzaman talks of it like this. He says, like, the experts in Arabic, he said, they when they read the Qur'an um, and they see its inimitability and its uniqueness, it says they just bite their fingers. They're like, ah, you know, like they just can't, they just can't hack it, you know, they just can't, they're so overwhelmed by it, they can do nothing other than bite their fingers, right? So maybe that has more, you know, uh, maybe that has more meaning in, in, in Turkish and Arabic, you know, than, than English. But, um, yeah, you know, it's just, um, it's something, right, that our enemies would very much like to be able to do, right, wouldn't they? I mean, yeah, like, you could, like, totally destroy Islam and the Muslims just by producing a piece of writing. And yet it hasn't been done. It hasn't been done. So the absence of that, right, the absence of any such piece of writing, the absence of any comers, right, any challenges, come on, guys, where are you? Right, come and meet this challenge. Right, the absence of any such challenges um, requires explanation, right? And the best explanation for that, under all, given all the circumstances, yeah, it's that this is of divine origin. Whatever explanation is there, whatever plausible explanation is there. Um, so to the extent that um, phenomena require explanation, yeah, this, this phenomenon certainly requires explanation. So that's the nature of the argument. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, guys, I hope that's, um, that's been helpful. I hope that, um, that, that has strengthened our um, conviction in, in Islam. Um, and in the, you know, and indeed in the miraculousness of the Qur'an, in the prophet, prophethood of our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, um, and in his truthfulness, because he did claim, didn't he, that these are not my words, right? Um, these are not my words, these are, you know, um, these are Allah's words. Um, so, yeah, inshallah, our faith in that has been... Um, come on. Yeah, inshallah, our faith in that has been um, reinvigorated, 